0: Hi folks, on this episode of the Plug in America Show, I chat with renewable energy policy guru Paul Geip about his now year-long adventuring around South Central California in an EV. But before we get started, please remember that Plug in America is a non-profit electric vehicle advocacy group and our work is supported by your generous donations. And have you heard the news? Plug-in America is raising $100,000 to hire a full-time policy director who will implement a national campaign to address a wide range of issues. From EV charging access in multifamily dwellings to consumer and dealer rebates and subsidies to foster the sales of more plug-in electric vehicles, such policies must be adopted, defended, and strengthened in all federal, state, and local jurisdictions. But we can only do that with your help. Please consider joining or donating by visiting PluginAmerica.org today. And we appreciate your kind support. Also, please be sure to visit PluginAmerica.org and click the Multimedia and Podcast tabs for the show notes and links to this episode. Hey everybody, welcome to another Plug In America Show. I'm your host, Bob Tregillis. Joining us today is Paul Guype of Winworks.org. Paul has written extensively about renewable energies for both the popular and trade press. His most recent book, Wind Energy Basics, A Guide to Home and Community-Scale Wind Energy Systems, is available from Chelsea Green Publishing. In 2004, Paul launched a campaign to bring electricity feed laws back to North America. The campaign is growing into a continent-wide Grassroots movement that has put renewable energy feed in tariffs on the political agenda in Canada and the U.S. And a little over a year ago, Paul jumped into the EV space when he leased a 2015 Nissan Leaf. Welcome to the Plug in America show, Paul. Hey, thank you, Bob. It's good to be with you again. Cool, yeah. And Paul, just kind of full disclosure, Paul and I have worked together on feed in tariff laws in the United States and here in Nevada. We had a bill for them in the 2011 legislature, but we're here to talk about EVs. So, you know, I kind of came to renewable energies from the EV side of things, and you're just the opposite. You came to EVs through the renewable energy side of things. So how did EVs kind of start popping up on your radar, Paul, and when did that happen? Well,
1: they've been something I've thought about for for many years. I've written about them in my various books. I've always included a mention of them as as the future for um, passenger vehicle transportation, um, whether it's electric trains or electric cars. But a few years ago, uh, we had decided we were going to need a new car, and whether we um, get a plug-in hybrid was what we were thinking about at the time, and they weren't available, so we went ahead and just... Just bought a Prius, and uh, that car's been aging uh, for several years, and I'm quite satisfied with it. But um, uh, then uh, a local uh, EV organizer, Ollie Danner, put together a couple of programs around EVs, and it reminded us, Nancy and myself, that we had planned to do a plug-in at one time, and now that EVs were available, maybe we didn't need to do a hybrid. Maybe we just needed to go directly to an EV, and Ollie Danner had organized this Electric Vehicle Pledge. And of course, we were, I think it's a great idea, and signed up. Um, and we went to a couple of events that uh, Ollie had organized, and there were EV drivers there, Nissan Leaf drivers. And and a lot of them are nerds, like myself. A lot of them are engineers. And they were just keen on uh, Nissan Leaf. Uh, there were some other vehicles there, but it was the guys that I talked to around uh, Nissan Leaf that got me all fired up, particularly when I asked one, was talking to them, and he said, yeah, when I was down in LA visiting somebody, and I stopped him, and I said, what? You went to LA? And we live in Bakersfield, California. There are no charge stations between here and Los Angeles, and so this was something that I had looked into, and that's a major limitation to having an EV here in the southern San Joaquin Valley. There's very few intercity uh, charge stations, and um, the uh, the fellow down the Nissan Leaf said, oh yeah, this is what you do, and he explained how you can take a electric vehicle and you can stop at either an RV park or in this case a shore power station at uh, a truck stop and charge there. And that makes getting to LA possible. And when when I learned that, it was like, I think we need to do
0: this. Exactly. Very good. And then, of course, you might remind folks you live in Bakersfield. Why don't you talk a little bit about Bakersfield's history and uh, air quality issues.
1: Well, Bakersfield is the uh, oil capital of California. Uh, Kern County is the uh, the oil producing uh, center of, uh, of uh, California. And California is, of course, a major oil producer in the United States. So that means we produce a lot of oil here. This is an oil town. And the Southern San Joaquin Valley has the worst air quality in the nation. It's worse than Houston. It's worse than uh, Los Angeles. And it's primarily photochemical smog from, from transport vehicles and all the dust from the agriculture here. So um, we, have, we have the absolute worst air quality in the nation, and it's primarily due to transportation. So
0: if any place needs to convert to electric vehicles, it's the San Joaquin Valley. Exactly. So anyway, so you decided to jump in and lease a vehicle. I think we'll go into, we'll talk about all the the subsidies and so forth at the end of the show when, because you just recently did your annual kind of how much did this car cost us for, for this year uh, information. So why don't we start out with talking about EV efficiency. And also, I see that you uh, have some engineering background in in cars as well. Why don't you also talk about that a little bit and then talk about efficiency?
1: Well, I mean, I grew up, uh, you know, in a generation where we all were car crazy. And uh, I lived in Central, I was raised in Central Indiana, and that was the home of um, uh, General Motors. Uh, And most of the people in my small town uh, worked at general motors plants and it was expected that when i graduated from high school that i was to work in a general motors plant and uh... pay my way through college by by working at general motors and i became a student at general motors institute technology and of course all the other students there were car car nuts car crazy we all had you know they all had big cars i had an mgb which uh, taught me a lot about automobiles because i spent all my time underneath it fixing it um, <laughs> But I don't have a degree in engineering, but I I can I can speak the language, and uh, that's held me in good stead all these years. And um, when I was uh, home in Indiana uh, a few months ago, I was at the local historical society, and there was a picture on the wall of an electric car. And Anderson, Indiana, made by Delco Remy, and I i never heard that Delco Remy had made an electric car. And so I began asking around. He says, oh, yeah, 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 that you have to talk to so-and-so. I called the head of the plant that built this car, and it's just an amazing story. That's on my website, um, and it's its a story that's not well known among uh, EV aficionados or EV engineers, but Delco Remy, it's a division of General Motors at the time, it's no longer a division of GM, but... They had made a prototype uh, electric vehicle in hopes that they could convince GM's corporate headquarters in Detroit to allow Delco remy to manufacture this car because they make electrical components. They weren't successful, and Detroit actually ordered the car chopped up into pieces. And that is a fact. That's not, not a conspiracy theory. <laughs> I've actually talked to the guy that was ordered to chop it
0: up. So, you know. Well, they uh, they crushed the EV1, too, later they did. on. <laughs> uh, this one they chopped, they chopped up into little pieces. Right. Right. Anyway, so let's talk a little bit about efficiency. So ICEs, or internal combustion engine vehicles, what kind of efficiency do they get for their fuel versus that of an EV?
1: Well, typically the efficiency of a, a internal combustion engine is in a low 20%, and of course in an EV uh, it's going to be much higher because uh, the electricity is converted directly to, to uh, the traction with the electric motor, so there's no combustion. There's combustion at the power plant, and the power plant can be 39 or 40% efficient, and there's efficiency losses in the transmission of electricity, but even when you add all that up, just in terms of simple efficiency in the use of the fossil fuel um, an electric car is more efficient than an internal combustion engine and most most engineers who've worked around this stuff just kind of understand that intuitively Uh, you can get into the nitty-gritty detail and we can talk about some of a recent study that looked at this in in greater detail but that's the the gist
0: of it right well all one has to do is just kind of take note of all the heat emanating off of a off of an engine versus a motor, even though motors do tend to get hot, they don't get hot like gasoline engines do. <laughs> and when there's heat, there's loss. Okay, well, why don't we move on then also to the tailpipe emissions uh, aspect. Of course, as you mentioned, you're living in one of the more polluted areas, and uh, so tailpipe emissions is an issue. Well, it, it's certainly an
1: issue here in this part of the world, and it's it's an issue in uh, Europe as well. Um, Well, for most people understand, an electric vehicle has no tailpipe. Uh, Now, some critics of EVs say, well, it has a very long tailpipe. That is the emissions that power an EV are emitted at a power plant someplace distant. But when you have photochemical smog, that's due to emissions from vehicles, say, in a confined area such as the San Joaquin Valley, it's really critical that that you limit the emissions that come from vehicles and electric vehicle of course is the is the optimum because there is no emissions from the vehicles you drive down the road and we don't have a lot of power plants here in the valley Um, there are a number of solar power plants of course they don't have any emissions either and there's the wind farms in Tehachapi and we have a few biomass plants but we don't have a lot of the coal-fired power plants or even natural gas-fired power plants here in the valley so if we want to limit emissions from passenger vehicles here in the San Joaquin Valley, well, you just you use electric.
0: Exactly. And then of course, you know, the emissions not only the the photochemical aspect of smog, but there's the particulate matter which is a big concern to people, especially with people with respiratory diseases and uh, that's of course one of the big benefits of having no tailpipe over even having well, of course, we've heard about the diesel tailpipes lately. Why, why don't you talk a little bit about that? What, what's your latest on that that you've heard about VW? Well, the, 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 the Volkswagen scandal is going
1: to make a is going to have a major effect on uh, the the use of EVs, uh, not only in the United States, uh, and California in particular, but also in Europe where the scandal has spread. And it looks like now Volkswagen's not the only one that uh, used software defeat devices, cheat de- cheating devices, and software to To allow the vehicles to pass their emission standards, emission tests, uh, and then once they're on the road, to to uh, tune the vehicle so that it uh, performs better, gets better mileage, but uh, emits uh, significantly more pollution, particularly uh, nitrogen oxides, which is contributes to photochemical smog here in the San Joaquin Valley, and that's that's the, one of the critical uh, pollutants in the San Joaquin Valley, is uh, nitrogen oxides. And if you look at the Volkswagen Passat, for example, it's uh, the emissions uh, uh, for the Passat are 35 times the standard in, in the United States. That's not the California standard. That's 35 times the EPA standard. And, of course, the, the uh, Nissan
0: LEAF doesn't emit any pollutants at the tailpipe because there is no tailpipe. Right. Why don't we talk a little bit about the new uh, report that came out by the Union of Concerned Scientists, Cleaner Cars from Cradle to Grave. Of course, this is a perpetual debate in the media. You know, one report will tell us that EVs are bad if they're, you know, if they're charged only with coal power or electricity and another, you know, there's been dozens and dozens of these reports and they seem to go back and forth. Of course, a report's only as good as it's uh, starting assumptions. <laughs> and uh, why don't you talk about why? I don't think we've actually talked about life cycle analysis or cradle to grave on the show. So why don't you give listeners a little bit of a kind of a background on why we talk in terms of cradle to grave and not just uh, pump to wheel? You know, we go well to wheel instead of pump to wheel and things of this sort well
1: um, bob the, uh, the the first thing is, of course, we include the emissions from the power plant and the losses of of uh, uh, efficiency by transmitting the electricity, so it's the total amount of electricity that needs to be generated to power an electric vehicle, and all the emissions associated uh, with uh, creating the electric, building the electric vehicle, including the batteries and the electricity that powers the electric vehicle of electricity and all the emissions associated with that and the emissions of disassembling the car and taking out the battery and disposing of the battery. Those are all um, parts of the life cycle of an electric vehicle. It's parts of a life cycle of any product, but it's particularly uh, uh, of concern to Uh, Passenger vehicles. If we're going to switch the passenger vehicle fleet, the literally millions of vehicles that currently use gasoline or diesel fuel, if we're going to convert them to to electricity, we need to have a good idea of uh, whether that's a benefit in terms of air quality or energy efficiency or using resources uh, more wisely. And so this was a um, um, study by the Union Concerned Scientists. It's is the most recent of several studies that they've done. This is the most extensive yet. Uh, and it includes the uh, energy uh, in, uh, to mine the resources and to manufacture the lithium-ion batteries that are necessary to power the traction batteries to power an electric vehicle. And um, critics, typically from the fossil fuel industry, have said, well, you haven't included the, the energy intensity of the uh, traction batteries in these calculations. And so this time, Union Concerned Scientists uh, used an Argyne National Laboratory model. So this is not UCS creating these numbers out of thin air. Uh, this is a U.S. Uh, government research laboratory, Argyne National Laboratory, someplace in Illinois, southwest of Chicago, I think, who have this uh, input-output uh, model. Uh, a very sophisticated model. It certainly has a very steep learning curve because I tried to use it the other day. and It's well out of my league. Uh, and and they used that to, to, to look at the energy requirement and the emissions from every aspect of, manu- of manufacturing uh, an electric vehicle. And what they found was that, that if you look at, we talked about efficiency uh, a moment ago, if you compared electric vehicles, looked at them in terms of miles per gallon relative to the average light-duty vehicles, so that's passenger vehicles, the typical light-duty vehicle, the average uh, in the United States is 29 miles per gallon. All the top cars that are in the EPA's uh, mileage, fuel efficiency ratings, are all electric. And among those, for example, is a Nissan Leaf, which gets 114 miles per gallon, uh, and the Tesla gets 100 miles per gallon. And so that's a, that's a measure of their efficiency in terms of all the fuel that they're using to power the electric vehicle as well as to manufacture the electric vehicle and to manufacture the batteries. That gives you a sense of scale. Um, that's um, one aspect of it. Another aspect, of course, is that in the United States, uh, we still use a lot of coal. Right. Uh, but there are some regions of the United States, such as the Northeast, and New York State particularly uses a lot of hydro, and then the Pacific Northwest, where they use a lot of hydro. And, of course, here in California, where we like to think we're so green, uh, we don't have quite as much hydro, and we still use a fair amount of fossil fuels. Not so much coal, maybe only 10% coal, but quite a bit of natural gas. And so if you look at that, uh, New York State, the average electric vehicle in New York State would get 135 miles per gallon. And California, which we like to think of ourselves as green, only gets 87 miles per gallon. And the USA, on the average, is about 68 miles per gallon. So that takes into account the mix of generating resources uh, in those in, across the United States and in those particular regions. And if you look, for example, if you just look at our car, the one that we have that Nancy and I lease, a 2015 Nissan Leaf, you gets the equivalent of... 97 miles per gallon uh, based on the mix of resources used to generate electricity for use here in California. So that gives you a sense of scale. And of course, if, the, if California had 100% renewable energy, um, the emissions would be even lower and the mileage would be even greater.
0: Right. It's like we like to say, as the electricity grid gets cleaner, so will our cars. And it can only be that if it is an electric vehicle that you're driving. (laughs) Right. It
1: only happens if it's an electric vehicle. So if you look at the emissions uh, from uh, coal-fired generation electricity, they're they're the same as the emissions, the total emissions from um, liquid uh, fossil fuels, that is, oil and gas, diesel fuel and gas. Uh, Natural gas is about 50% of the emissions, Uh, and of course, biomass and other forms of renewable energy are much, much lower. Hydro is the least polluting of any of the generating resources, followed by wind. And I know critics of wind energy will find it hard to imagine, but uh, wind is very, very close to hydro in terms of the
0: amount of emissions per kilowatt hour generated. Yes, indeed. Um, And then also a nice thing about this new report is that it's the first report that I'm aware of where they've actually mentioned uh, the impact that battery repurposing and battery recycling might have on the end figures. They were unable to include that data because we have no... Firm data that shows shows exactly how how long a battery might last after it is repurposed and the energy going in to repurpose the battery. And then of course we don't have a lot of data on recycling these large traction batteries since there's only one recycling plant. And I'm not even sure if they've recycled a battery yet. Uh but I guess that, that data as that data uh, accumulates, then it'll be able to include it into the model and we'll see that I think EVs are gonna be much more efficient even if they were running strictly on coal power than a gas car could possibly be um, and then also they have a nice little calculator here if people are unaware of it we'll get it into the show notes so you can find it how clean is your electric vehicle and you put in your zip code and uh, <coughs> model of your vehicle and uh, punch um, enter and it'll pop it out and compare it to gas only cars and plug in hybrids in your vicinity and stuff and um, uh, give you a good uh, idea of what your uh, carbon dioxide equivalent per mile is from your vehicle. Um, so, Paul, you've been driving an electric car now, uh, Nissan Leaf, for a year, and you have some uh, uh, data for what it's cost you. Um, I was interested to see that uh, you have a local uh, subsidy that goes, that you were able to take a benefit of. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about the uh, you know purchasing the car, the subsidies and the costs and all that stuff
1: well to make it real simple uh the car that we have is a is a two thousand and fifteen Nissan Leaf s with the quick charge package it's the only only way you should buy an e v today is with a quick charge that is a fast charging capability um, really, it makes the car so much more useful and so for us that's about thirty three thousand dollars um Uh, retail price, um, and there are $7,500 subsidies. It's a tax credit from a federal subsidy. Um, That's a tax credit, and, of course, you have to owe enough taxes to take advantage of that. So it's not really – we were not able to. It penalizes the federal tax subsidy, penalizes Mm -hmm. people in our tax position. Um, We can't take advantage of it. So that's why we leased. Um, Nissan can take advantage of the subsidy and reduce the cost of the vehicle – Uh, accordingly, and we can still still lease the vehicle. So that's the federal subsidy, $7,500. There's a state subsidy here in California, $2,500. And because we live in the most polluted place in the United States, one of the advantages, the only advantage, is that we get a pretty hefty subsidy of $3,000 from Air Quality Control District trying to convince us to drive electric. So when you add all that up, uh, that uh, brings the cost of the Nissan Leaf from uh, $33,000 down to $20,000. It makes it uh, comparable to similar sized gasoline powered cars that you can buy here in Bakersfield. That's not exactly how the transaction works out, of course, because we lease. But anyway, that's uh, just to be- before we go on, I just wanted to add when I talk about the batteries being included in the cradle to grave. A study that UCS uh, did, Bob, uh, that was not just the original, the initial traction battery, but actually replacing the traction bot- battery uh, once and possibly twice. So it included the energy necessary in the traction battery if you replace the battery uh, once or twice during the life of the vehicle. And and the important point of this was. That the energy in the traction, but to make the traction battery is really not that significant.
0: And it was one of those things that, well, people think it's a problem, but it turns out it's not really a problem. Right. But they don't account for any repurposing or recycling, isn't it? Just straight disposal well, of the Well, make battery. it even
1: better. Exactly.
0: Right. Yeah that's my point is that the repurposing of course I always thought up until this report that the battery was a larger part of the of the of the overall carbon footprint of the vehicle when it doesn't appear to be as such especially if you have an economical EV like a Nissan Leaf versus maybe a Tesla Model S. <laughs> well, when I was thinking
1: about it, you know, Bob, when I was thinking about it, so so an electric car doesn't have an engine. An engine is a very mm-hmm. complex and very material-intensive uh, piece of equipment, and it takes, you know, there's a lot of a lot of energy contained in the iron and steel that's used to make the engine. An electric vehicle has a motor, but it's not equivalent to an engine, and it has a traction battery. And so what I think you see is that the energy intensity of manufacturing the traction battery and electric motor pretty much for for a compact car like the Nissan Leaf balances out the energy intensity of the internal combustion engine.
0: Indeed. So, yeah, let's. we're starting to get a little long here. Why don't we also finish mm-hmm. up here by talking about the, your experience with the EVSE, and maybe we'll just have to save for another time, get you back on to talk about some of your long-distance trips. I was hoping to get to those, but I guess people will have to refer to... Paul's blog at win-works.org and click on the electric vehicle link and you can read uh, a lot about he's done various long distance trips and documented all the data if you're a data geek you'll love it Um, but why don't you talk a little bit about your EVSE experience there at home and what it uh, is involved in getting that hooked up
1: well we don't uh, we don't have a garage we can park the car in so we had to mount our uh, charge station or electric uh, vehicle supply equipment uh, on the wall of the house that required an electrician to hardwire installation. We uh, we installed a Clipper Creek. That's a brand of uh, charge station that's made here in California. It's not made in China. It's made right here in California, uh, not far from the San Joaquin Valley, and uh, we um, kind of. Pr- Future-proofed it by installing a 40 amp um, uh, charge station, and the uh, fact that uh, our uh, Leaf is outside uh, charging right now, drawing 6.6 kilowatts from from the uh, service entrance, the electric service entrance uh, the electricity company provides to us, um, and uh, going through the battery charger, which is actually in the car, delivering six kilowatts to the traction battery, and it this uh, EVSE or charge stations mounted on the wall of our house um, and it's got a 20 foot cable and at the end of that cable is a special connector called the J1772 which you plug into the snout of your car. In our case, a leaf. I mean, you plug it into the snout,
0: uh, you plug it into (laughs) the charge port. Exactly. And you have a nice, you got a Nice little addition of a kilowatt-hour meter that you put on there, and you have a NEMA 1450 receptacle for doing various testing with the portable EVSE that Nissan gives you and so forth. Yeah, um, those
1: are all things, Bob, that we installed because uh, I'm, I talk about these things. I want to uh, write about these things, and uh, Nancy and I are doing the electric vehicle in part to – to, to be pioneers in this area and share our experience with others. So, you know, I've got a lot more gear on the wall than uh, other people might need, but it's uh, useful to
0: us, and we've learned a lot from it already. Right. So the bottom line, you, you come up with your uh, first-year cost of about $4,400. Of course, you had some extras like you were just talking about, and if you were to subtract some of those out you know, for add-ons that you've, you got the more expensive EVSE and you put the, the meter on there and you bought one of those Jesla MC, is that how they say it? Yeah, Jesla, uh, uh, a mobile charger, yes.
1: Yeah, that's, that wasn't, it's not cheap, but it's uh, well worth it.
0: Right, and yeah, that's, so you could get the 240 when you're on the road from uh, from various RV parks and so forth. But if you were to subtract those, I guess your bottom line was about $3,000, oh, yeah, that would be less than that. Yeah, yeah less than that. Uh, and in, for, in fact, oh, Bob,
1: no. it's even. You know, I reported as four thousand dollars because critics uh, and my enemies would say, "Ah, but it's four thousand dollars." I said, "Well, yes, it is." And so just acknowledge that. But when you look at it, if you prorate the cost of the charge station over ten years, because that's probably, you know, that's this generation of vehicles, mm-hmm. certainly the next generation of vehicles. So that's at least six years, and possibly part of the. You know, third vehicle cycle, that charge station will be adequate for that purpose. Uh, if you prorated over a number of years, we'd probably have about a wash in the first year. But uh, because I did, you know, we paid out of pocket $4,000, I reported that way. Right.
0: Exactly. So, well, that's good. And so I guess overall, you're really enjoying the electric vehicle experience. Yeah, you know when people talk about these things, they talk about the cost of the, to the pay for the fuel, and we figure we,
1: you know, put in two hundred and fifty dollars worth of electricity in the car over the year, which is, you know, pretty insignificant. Um, and we we enjoy driving; it's our vehicle of choice now. It's uh, if Nancy wants to drive off, uh, and I need to do something, we have to, you know, flip a coin a coin who she gets to drive the Leaf. Um, we both like it; it's fun. Uh, and I know when we take people out in it to show them the car. They like to drive it, too. So that's an aspect, uh, you know, for people who've driven an electric car,
0: they have tremendous torque. And, you know, if you like that, it's fun. (laughs) And, of course, it would be the inefficient way to drive it when you have your foot to the – or when you have a lithium foot, as they say. (laughs) It's not exactly the most efficient way to drive an EV. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Paul. It's always fun to be with you, Bob. Thank you. This has been another edition of the Plugin America Show. Thanks so much for listening. And please help us get the word out about the Plugin America Show and EVs by pointing friends and family to the in America website at PluginAmerica.org. There you'll find a wealth of information about EVs, our plug-in vehicle tracker that tells you what EVs are available, what's coming and when, a blog, information about EV chargers and public charging, multimedia content, promotional materials, and much more. And, of course, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for us there. And have you heard the news? Plug-in America is raising $100,000 to implement a national campaign to address a wide range of issues from EV charging access and multifamily dwellings to consumer and dealer rebates and subsidies to foster the sales of more plug-in electric vehicles. But we can only make that happen with your help. Please consider joining or donating by visiting PluginAmerica.org today. And we appreciate your kind support. Thanks to Angleboard, whose music was used here by permission. And until next time, remember, at Plugin America, we drive electric and you can too.